Our scripture reading today is from Romans 8, 7 through 17. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Thank you, Brenda. My name is Terry Henderson, and I'm not one of the pastors here, um, but it is a privilege to be able to to share with you today. Um, And yes, I'm as anxious to see how this thing turns out as you are. So, uh, so bear with us. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, if you are new, or if you haven't been around very long, uh, we, back in June, did a message series on union with Christ, which really sets this, this series that we're in now up well. And the, the series that we began last week is about a five-week series on Romans 8, just that, that passage in Romans. And it's a very rich passage. It has some of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible in that passage. So it's going to be interesting to walk through that. Most scholars agree that the book of Romans, uh, the the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, is actually the pinnacle of all of his writings. Uh, Martin Luther, in particular, held the book of Romans in highest regard. And here's what he said about Romans. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. So I think Martin Luther would be pleased that we're spending a few weeks in, in Romans 8. So let's, uh, let's take a look uh, at where we are today. So we're actually starting in verse uh, 7 of, of Romans 8, and if you have your Bibles, uh, you can follow along. We're going to really try to just work through this uh, kind of a verse at a time, uh, as we did last week. And last week, Drew covered verses 1 through 6, but I want to go back and read 5 and 6 again because they really set up uh, where we're going in 7. So verse 5, Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So, in the first section of our passage today, starting in verse 7, Paul begins to contrast the flesh with the spirit. The mind that is focused on the flesh with the mind that is focused on the spirit. 
And when Paul refers to the flesh in, in all of these passages, he's not talking about our, our human bodies. He's talking about the sinful nature, our human sinful nature. Back in Genesis 3, you'll recall that Adam and Eve, given the choice, chose to rebel against God and his authority. And we refer to that act as the fall of man. And since the fall of man, all humans who have ever lived have an evil human nature. And the secret is you do too. So in verses 7 and 8, Paul begins to describe the person whose mind is set on that Focus on that human nature, preoccupied with ourselves and not God. And so let's look at the three characteristics of that kind of person. Verses 7 and 8. And they're, they're very plain to see here. For the mind that is set on the flesh is, first of all, hostile to God. Now, he doesn't say we're lukewarm to God or ambivalent. He says we're hostile to God. We're enemies of God. We don't like God. The flesh doesn't like God. We don't like his authority, and we rebel against that. And that's the result of the fall. So first of all, we're hostile. the flesh is hostile to God. Secondly, the flesh does not submit to God, verse 7. And then he goes on and he says, it actually cannot submit to God. And again, if you hate God and you rebel against his authority, then you're certainly not going to submit to him, and that's the flesh. Third, verse 8, those who are in the flesh... Paul goes on, and he kind of wraps it up, and he says, there's no way they can even please God. So that's the description Paul has of the flesh, and it's pretty bleak, isn't it? Now, Paul contrasts that with those who are, whose mind is set on the spirit. And the spirit here that he refers to here is not my better person, my better nature. It's, like, it's not like I got an evil nature and a better nature, and he's talking about the better one. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, because if you'll notice in your Bible, at least mine, it's, the word spirit is capitalized all the way through. So what you, who he's really talking about here is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so the description he has uh, of, of that person who's focused on the Spirit is uh, found in starting in verse 9. And he begins this with, you, however, but you. See, he's writing to the Christians in Rome, and he knows that they are believers, and so he says... The mind that's set on the flesh are these kind of things. But you, since you're in Christ, are this kind of person. Here's what, how he describes that person. First of all, it, it, this person is different than the person in the flesh. And here's how they're different. First of all, uh, verse 9, you're not in the flesh but in the spirit. John Piper says that this is something akin to in the sway of the Spirit or in the control of the Spirit or under the power of the Spirit. The idea here is that the Spirit becomes the major influence in your life. Number two, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, the word dwell here doesn't mean current location. Like if I ask you if somebody texted you during the sermon, and they probably will, Feel free to text them back. Um, And they said, hey, where are you? You would say, I'm at church. Stop texting me because I'm really interested in this guy. Um, But you would say, I'm at church, which means that's where you are right now. But you don't dwell here. This is not your home. And the root word that Paul is using here is the same as home. And so what Paul is really saying is the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. Now, we can kind of get comfortable with each other in this setting and everything, but when you get home, you really feel 
comfortable, right? And the, the, when you take up resonance, the idea here is closeness and familiarity and influence and intimacy. And so the Holy Spirit, Paul says, has taken up residence. If, we, if our faith is in Christ, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. He is there to become intimate with us, to get very familiar with us, and then to have influence. He is not outside of us barking orders. He is inside us changing our heart. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. And then third, he describes this this mind that's set on the Spirit. And he says that we belong to Christ. In fact, he says if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So we belong to Christ. The Holy Spirit in you is proof that you belong to Christ. Back to the idea of the of union with Christ that we've talked about back in June. And the idea there is Christ is in us, but we are in Christ. And so what goes for him goes for me. And that's, that's what Paul is getting out here. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we now uh, belong to Christ. And then he doesn't really say this, but I, I think the the reverse of what we said about the mindset on the flesh is probably true about the mindset on the spirit. So if we go back to that, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, which would then uh, tell us that the mindset on the spirit is a friend of God. We, we now have, are no longer enemies with God. We can submit to his authority because of the Holy Spirit on us, and we are capable of pleasing him. So that's the contrast, the flesh and the spirit. Very different. Now, the second thing I'd like to look at is the conflict between those two, right? As I mentioned earlier, every human has this sinful nature, the flesh, we call it. And when we place our faith in Christ and God justifies us, the Holy Spirit comes in to dwell, dwell in us. But the, the sad part is the old nature does not go away. So if you're, a believe, if you're a non-believer, you have one nature, sinful nature. If you're a believer, you have two natures, the Holy Spirit and your sinful nature. And so that because that sinful nature is still there, we sin. Why? Because we're sinners. But as Drew said last week, we're sinners but loved at the same time. Now, I grew up with a misconception that when I became a Christian, which happened when I was 16, that my life would be made new and that sin would be a thing of the past and, you know, it would be just happily ever after and yellow brick road and whatever other analogy you want to use there and that, that I would just go on and, and I'd, be, I'd be happy. And so I tried really hard not to sin and you probably know what happened. I sinned and then when I sinned, since I thought I wasn't supposed to, I felt ashamed and I felt defeated. And some days I wondered how it was possible that I was even a Christian and I really struggled with that because I was unsure of my relationship with God because I sinned. See, I grew up in a church that I wouldn't really label it legalistic. You know, I mean, we had some that, that I grew up around that we would say, wow, that church is really... I didn't really grow up in a church like that, but we certainly had our set of rules, right? And it was a, it was a list of things that, that if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to do these and you can't do these. This list was really longer, way longer than, than this list. But, but here's one example. A pastor came to our church, and, and one of the things that the rule that he instituted, and this is kind of silly, but this is the kind of thing that, that sort of, you know, I was, I was exposed to. So one example, he came to the church, and he wouldn't allow boys and girls to swim together. And I get the intent of that because I was a boy. But 
they call it's it's interesting that they called it mixed bathing, which really I'm opposed to as well. But <laughs> but swimming I'm okay with. Um, but may, I don't know. But anyway, those are the kind of kind of rules that uh, I mean I could vote against that all all day long. But but those were the kind of rules, and some were stated, and then some were just understood. But that's that's the way kind of I grew up. And so I felt that God was always mad at me because I committed sins. How could he love me because of these sins? Because I knew my heart, and I knew what I was thinking, and I knew what I was doing, even if nobody around me did, right? So it was a struggle, but I always thought, okay, the next milestone, I'm going to conquer this. And so I thought, when I was in high school, I thought, when I get out of high school, I'm going to get away from the peer pressure. And then I won't deal with this anymore, right? That didn't work out so well. The next thing I thought was, okay, once I get married, a lot of things I struggle with, you know, I won't struggle with anymore. So I'll live this, you know, it'll be happy ever after because I'll get married. So I got married when I was 25. Um, Yeah, Tammy's only five years younger than me, for those of you who keep wondering about that. But anyway, I was was 25. we got married, and we just celebrated 30 years of marriage back in June. And uh, some of those years, uh, especially the first few, were not so great. And she'll tell you that, too. Um, I asked her if I could share this today. She said, um, So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, it's not, and our friends know this. So, it's funny, we were at a wedding of a friend last weekend. And on the way home, we were just talking about marriage in general. And, um, and so we just celebrated 30 years. And so I looked at her and said, honey, it's been a great 23 years. And, uh, and she looked at me and smiled and said, more like 15. And I said, I said why, don't we just, uh, why don't we just stop right there? Um, so, so marriage didn't stop my sin problem either. See, what I didn't realize was that I would always struggle with sin. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I have a sinful human nature, and as hard as it is to admit it, we need to do that. Author Brennan Manning has a quote that says, The good news means we can stop lying to ourselves, and that's what I was doing. One of the things I love about um, but our, our church, uh, in order to become a member, there's a process that you go through, and, and it really is a few steps. One is you go to some classes, because we really want to make sure we're kind of all on the same page. So you go to some classes, and then that you're interviewed by one of the elders um, in, you know, of our session. Um, and really the elder is just trying to sort out, you know, is this person really a believer and, and make sure that, that both uh, the, the prospective member and the leadership of the church sort of understand the accountability there is and the responsibility to one another. But anyway, the, so the, the last step is we stand up here, and all of us have done this. We stand up here who, who are members, and we, and we take vows, five vows, and they're kind of old vows, so the, the wording is a little, maybe not what we'd write today, but the first one is this. We take these very seriously. It's like a wedding ceremony, you know, sort of. So we take this vow, and the first vow is this. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner? Not a former sinner, but a sinner. And Drew has said this before, the church is the only uh, place that the qualifications are, you aren't qualified, right? And so, so we ask that question. Now, the, um, recently, you know, we just put the session in place last 
October, something like that. So recently, the elders have begun to do the membership interviews. Uh, Drew and Jonathan kind of had that responsibility themselves for a while, but we've been uh, able to do that. And so Tammy and I were, have uh, been able to do a few, and they're great because you really get to know people. Well, the first one we did, we sat down with a couple. We were having dinner, and... Um, and so it was a little awkward because it was the first first one for me. And so one of the things that, that we, we do is kind of walk through the vows and then talk about each one of those, and, and it really is a good basis for discussion. So early, you know, this is the first vow, right? So early in the discussion, we're just starting to eat our salad or whatever. And uh, I just looked across the table and I said, so tell me what sins you struggle with on a daily basis. And I could feel Tammy go, my God, what is he doing? Check. Because it's just not something that we, we typically, you know, talk about. So, we, you know, we, it was a little awkward for a second there, but we ended up having this great discussion about my sin and their sin and where we struggle with those things. See, we want to be able to admit as a body, we want to be able to admit we're sinners because then we, if we're transparent about that, then we're able to have access to one another and, and be able to speak into each, one another's lives. Um, if, if, we're not, if we don't admit we're sinners, then there's no need for a Savior any longer. Uh, Flannery O'Connor said, the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. I like that quote. Now, because we have two natures, uh, as, as Paul has described, that uh, it, we, we struggle with doing the things we want to do and the things that, that we don't want to do, and, and we, we just have a struggle with that. Paul described that of himself in, in chapter 7. And the example that uh, I mean, Drew always uses these really cool Lord of the Rings and Hunger Games and all those, those current popular... Okay, here's mine. Remember the Flintstones? <laughs> the, not the John Goodman and Rick Moranis fiasco, but um, the real Flintstones, right? Um, so the, the cartoon, and, and you, you, if you're old enough and, and you've seen this, you remember Fred would, would get himself in a quandary, right? And so how they would show this struggle that we're talking about here, and it's not accurate, but, but I mean, there's something to it. So on one shoulder, you remember this? On one shoulder, uh, there'd be the, the angelic Fred, right? So wings and white outfit and a halo over here, whispering in his ear, Fred, don't do that. It's going to hurt Wilma's feelings. Barney will feel even shorter than he is now, or whatever that was. And on this side, you had the Fred dressed as the devil, which we know what the devil looks like, right? Red pajamas, horns, tail. So he was dressed over here, and he was going, Fred, this will make you feel great. You've got to to do this, and his voice will do it. And so... Fred was constantly, you know, getting, getting this. And really, it, it's, it's a little bit accurate in that there are two natures. Now, the real picture should have been, if Fred was a believer, and I'm not really sure that he was, but if he was a believer, then it, it really would have been Fred dressed as his, in his normal outfit, the real Fred, and then the Holy Spirit. That would have been, and that would have been inside, not outside. But, but anyway, that's my popular cultural reference today. Check that off. Okay, so the point is there's a struggle, right? There's a, there's a struggle going on, a conflict. And this struggle is part of what we call, it's a kind of a fancy word, we call it sanctification. And simply defined, sanctification is a process that makes us more, uh, that frees us from sin more and more and makes us more and more like Christ. 
Remember justification? We've talked about that quite a bit. It's a one-time instantaneous act where God declares us righteous, not based on our performance, but based on the finished work of Christ. The song we sang this morning, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. That's justification. Happens one time, it's instantaneous. Sanctification follows that. And sanctification begins the day you are justified, and and it's a process that continues until the day you die. So if you are a believer and you're not dead, you're in that process. And it's messy. It's not a fun process. It gets really ugly. But that's, what, that's where we are. Here's what the Westminster Confession says about sanctification. Again, old language, but I think you'll get the point. The sanctification is throughout in the whole man yet imperfect in this life. In other words, you're not going to be completely sanctified in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. John Piper, in a sermon on how to kill sin, about this war that we're having with sin, quotes author Ed Welch, and I want to read the quote. It's a little lengthy, but I think it captures what the Westminster Confession and what sanctification is all about. Listen to this. It talks about the struggle. There is a mean streak to authentic self-control. It's not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. There's a mean violent streak in the true Christian life, but violence against whom or what? Not other people. It's violence against all the impulses in us that would be violent to other people. It's a violence against... It's a violence against all the impulses in our own selves that would make peace with our own sin and settle in with a peacetime mentality. It's a violence against all lust in ourselves and enslaving desires for food or caffeine or sugar or alcohol or chocolate or pornography or money or the praise of men and the approval of others or power or fame. It's violence against the impulses in our own soul toward racism and sluggish indifference to injustice and poverty and abortion. And then he ends up with this. Christianity is not a settle in and live at peace with this world the way it is kind of religion. If by the Spirit you kill the deeds of your own body, you will live. Christianity is war on our own sinful impulses. So, if it's a war, don't be surprised when you struggle with sin because the war is inside you and it's part of the sanctification process. So Paul describes the the conflict there. And then in verse 12, he kind of moves from describing it to here's what you need to do about it, right? So in verse 12, he begins to encourage the readers as to why they should live in the Spirit. And he says this, we're not debtors to the flesh, not to live according to the flesh. The implication then, he doesn't say it, but the implication is we're debtors to the Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit gives us life. And if this Holy Spirit gives us life, then we can't possibly live according to the flesh, which brings us death. Since the Spirit has given us life, we are obligated, he says, to live according to the Spirit. See, 
we can acknowledge the fact that we're sinners, but we can't just say, and I hate this, we can't just say, well, I'm just a sinner. You know, every time we fail, we can't just say, well, I'm just a sinner and not do anything about it. Let's say Tammy and I had a three-year-old, and you invited us over to your house, and we were having dinner, and our three-year-old climbed up on the table and started throwing your fine china on the floor because you would bring out your fine china when we came over, I'm assuming. So they would throw the fine china on the floor. And what if we just sat there and looked at you and smiled and said, he's just a three-year-old. You'd look at us like we had two heads. Be like, what the, you know, control this kid, right? You can't just excuse the behavior because he's a three-year-old. And many times we say, well, we're just sinners. There's nothing I can do about it. And we fold our hands and and not deal with it. And Paul says, "Eh, that's not really going to work. So in verse 13, he says, this is how you deal with the flesh, the indwelling sin. And here it is, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So his deal is, he says, put, put it to death by the Spirit. The old English word here is mortify which we kind of think of as being afraid now, but it really means put into the mortuary. In other words, kill it. And so that's what Paul says. The only answer to this is kill sin. Now, why is it important that we take such drastic measures? John Owen, in writing on this subject, made this statement. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's why. I like James Bond movie. Oh, I have another cultural reference I forgot about. I have James Bond. I love James Bond movies, but I like the really old ones with Sean Connery that are not so techno stuff. And one of the things that always puzzles me about it is invariably at some point in the movie, Bond and his beautiful girlfriend, uh, probably Russian, will, will uh, get captured by the evil guy who is typically bald and has a big boat. And I don't know why that always happens that way, but that's the, that's the way it works. Um, and so they get captured, and so the, the evil guy's minions have, have their guns pointed on Bond and, and uh, Ursula Andrews or whoever it was back then. And so they got them, and what do they do? They tie them up, and they hook them on a pole and hang them over a shark tank. And then they got some candle or something that's, that starts burning that's going to burn the rope and eventually drop them in a shark tank and kill them. And so they put them there, and then they all leave. And so what happens every time? They somehow figure out, you know, he gets his, his uh, pen that Q gave him and, you know, shines the laser on it, burns through it, and they get away, and they go come back, and it comes back to bite Mr. Evil Guy, right? Here's the question. Is it a question for you too? Why don't they just shoot him? Well, they got the gun on him. If they, get, if, if they want to kill him, why don't they just do it, right? But they play with him, they toy with it, everything else. Sometimes, that's what we do with sin. We toy with it, we play with it. When Paul says we need to just kill it. Now, what does that look like? Killing, I mean, because it sounds great. Um, how do you, but how do you do that? Over in Ephesians 6... Um, Paul describes the armor of God that the Christian is to put on for spiritual warfare. And we're not going to go there, but you, you remember the, the, he describes it in great detail. 
a couple of things, the breastplate of righteousness and the, the helmet of salvation and the, the feet of the, the shod with the, with the piece of the gospel and so forth. And the, all of those are defensive weapons. There's one offensive weapon that he describes. It's the sword. And how does he describe it? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? And so he says here, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, Drew last week talked about going back. He, he referred to it as a personal arsenal, a collection of stories or um, uh, experiences that you've had uh, or people. There's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can go back to that will help us in this battle. But I think Paul primarily is referring to the Word of God here. So that's the primary weapon in defeating sin. There are other, other things too, means of grace and, and so forth. But, but, but the word, I think, is what he's probably really trying to get after here. Now, let me give you a practical example um, or two here. Paul, I think, is referring to, when he's talking about killing sin, I think he's referring to um, the besetting sins for us, Right? I don't think he's talking about me, you know, banging my nail yesterday and saying a cuss word or, you know, I don't think he's talking about those incidental things, although those are, those can turn into something. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that, but, but, and you know what it is for you, but, but there are, there are those sins that just constantly come back and we constantly struggle with. And I think that's what he's talking about here, uh, killing those kind of sins. So let me, um, let me give you a couple of examples. Let's say that your sin is um, somewhere along the way, you and another person cross, got crosswise, and there's unforgiveness, either on their part or your part, but it turns into anger, and then it turns into bitterness in you, right? So let's say that's the sin we're talking about that maybe you struggle with. Now, there are three ways you can deal with it. You can ignore it, right? Hope it goes away. Push it down, um, and I'm really good at that. That's uh, that I, I'm very competent uh, doing that. So you can push it down, but the downside of that it doesn't go away. And one day, you know, at the worst possible time, it's going to come rear its ugly head. And it's going to bite you. But ignoring it is an option. Or the second option is you can tolerate it or nurture it, maybe even play with it, so to speak. And sometimes, honestly, that feels good. If you are bitter, sometimes it's good to wallow in I mean, it feels good to wallow in that because it makes us feel that we're vindicated and somehow weirdly it feeds our self-esteem. But sometimes it's, it's good to do that. And, and if you've, maybe you've, you've been there, I know I have, where you just kind of begin to revel in that or, or, or um, feed it because, it because it makes us feel good. But if you feed it and do that, it's going to continue to grow, and it's going to lead to, in this case, complete bitterness and isolation. So that's an option, too. You can, you can nurture it. Or the third thing is you can take Paul's advice and kill it. And here's what it would look like in this case. So you feel this, this bitterness or unforgiveness or anger begin to rise, and the Holy Spirit takes you to a, a Bible story, a passage that you've read somewhere along the way, and he brings that to mind. And in this case, let's say he brings to mind Matthew 18, right? The parable of the unforgiving servant. So you begin to think through that story. 
And, and his story goes like this briefly. There's a king, a landowner, who has you know, big, big uh, pieces of land. And one of the guys that's managing one of the big pieces of land for him comes to him. And he owes him, call it $10 million. Jesus used hyperbole in here, but it, it was, that was about the number he was talking about. He owed him $10 million. So the, the, the manager says to, to the king, you know, I know I owe you $10 million. I can't pay it, but please have mercy on me. And so the king does. The king's heart is moved toward him. And so the king absorbs the cost. And the king paid, the 10 million doesn't go away. He paid it himself. And he let the the landowner go free. As the landowner is going away from that conversation, he runs into one of his servants who owes him 10 bucks. And the servant says to him, I know I owe you 10 bucks, but please have mercy on me because I can't pay the exact language that we heard before. And rather than the servant, I mean, rather than the landowner mimicking the king, he grabs the guy by the throat, has him thrown in jail. The king hears about it. And the king says, ooh, hang on a second, this isn't right. So he has the landowner thrown in jail. So the, the, in, you know, Jesus wraps the parable up and he says, if you don't forgive other people, your father's not going to forgive you. And so the Holy Spirit brings that to mind, and then we're able to begin to kill that sin. And that's how we do it. And it's a lifetime. It's over and over and over but it's that particular sin. Here's mine. I uh, took a test, uh, personality test thing uh, recently. Uh, And it's not one of those, you know, what color do you like? Or if you were a butterfly, what flower would you land on? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that. It's it's like 500 questions. And then they, you know, they analyze it clinically and everything. So anyway, I sat down, I looked at the, the thing, and it shows you, you know, you're sort of normal here. And, and the one outlier for me, um, I mean, it's not like I'm perfect in other places, but the one thing that kind of stood out was narcissism. And so I looked at that test and I said, there's got to be something wrong here. How can somebody as wonderful as me be a narcissist? <laughs> so, but that's it. And, and when, when you peel it back for me, it's, it may be subtle and you may, you may not see it. Uh, because it's not like Donald Trump narcissism or something like that. You know, I have my name on the outside of everything. And stuff like that. But here's, here, here's how it plays out for me. My reputation is very important to me to the point that it becomes an idol. And so that's how it, it plays out for me. So, so here's, here's how I could walk through this. My options are ignore it, pretend the test was wrong, pretend what I know in my heart's wrong, ignore it. But someday... It comes up in relationships and bites me. Or I could revel in it, and I do this. And here's how I do it. And, um, I, see, my, as I said, I'm not, I'm not an approval seeker so much, but I am a narcissist. So what that means is I don't necessarily need immediate uh, approval or validation. So I don't really, you know, if you come up to me today and say, oh, that was a funny story. So, I mean, I appreciate that, but I'm not, I don't feed on that. But what I do need is for people to look at my entire life and say, that guy's successful. He's, you know, he's, he's got it together. He really knows what he's doing. That's what I need. That, that's my sin. That's my idol, right? And so here's how I revel in that. Every time I get a little, you know, pain, like yesterday I was having having this really, you know, pain here. It's probably indigestion or something, but, but I, you know, I was having that, and, and so I started thinking, I'm going to die. 
And, and so um, after I get over that thought, I think, I wonder who would show up at my funeral. <laughs> and then I start thinking, I bet a lot of people will. <laughs> and then, I, I, hear me out. This is my heart. And so then I start thinking, where will they possibly be able to hold this thing? Because this time of the year, it's rainy, and Raymond James might be a, not an option. And so I, that's, I begin to, to really to revel in that, but it's sin. I mean, that's what it is. So, so I don't need you to come up and say, boy, that was great, but show up at my funeral, okay? Um, but that, I mean, honestly, that's, that's, the, the, that's the me idol. And, I mean, it's a silly uh, example, but that's, that's how I feed that thing. I revel in it. But here's, my, here's the option that I should take, and I'm not good at this. When that comes up in me, where, I, where my reputation, begun, somebody challenges that and I kind of bow up, then I need to go back to a passage like Philippians 2, where Jesus, who had everything in heaven, humbled himself and gave up his reputation for me, Right? And that's how I begin to kill that sin. If he can do that for me, then certainly I can, I can deal with somebody saying something about me. And that's how that works. So that's the remedy, killing sin. Kill sin or it will be killing you. Now, how do we get the confidence and the courage to do that? We can only admit that we're sinners and deal with the sin if we are assured of his love for us because we are scared. If we're, if, if we're scared, he's going to get mad at us. He's not going to do that because his love is not dependent on our performance. Verses 14 through 17 talk, uh, describe how the Spirit confirms our relationship with God uh, and our standing before God. And the first picture is found in verse 15. It's that of an adopted son. Now, this is not so much describing a relationship as it is a, it's a legal term, right? In that culture, sir, sons had certain rights, um, unique rights. The idea here is that we were slaves, but now we are adopted as sons with all the rights and privileges that go along with being a son. Timmy and I have a, some friends who, um, they have an older daughter, but they had a 10-year-old son. This is 15 years ago. Their 10-year-old son was tragically killed in an accident. And so a few years after that, they, they decided to try to adopt. And they, they uh, went through the process, which it, some of you know is very uh, very difficult and, and costly and, uh, and painful. It's a pro- process sometimes to go through. And they finally ended up adopting a Romanian uh, boy who was 10 years old. So they, at their expense, they went over and, and they did all of the work to go get him. And then when they brought uh, this boy out, he's a friend of my son's, they brought this boy out. The people there just stripped him completely naked and handed them him over to them and said, okay, he's yours. So there was nothing this boy did to be adopted, but this family adopted him. Now, when they got back, they went before a judge, and I don't know how this works, but they went before a judge to finalize the adoption, and, and our friend was telling me that, that when, when the judge you know, got ready to finalize it, he, he looked at them and he said, okay, you're adopting him. This is a lifetime commitment. And he said, you can disinherit your daughter if you want to, but you can never disinherit him. Are you sure you want to go through with that? And they did. So that's that's kind of the picture that that Paul is is painting for us here. We are adopted 
by God, and that is unconditional, it's binding, and it goes on forever. He, he went from being an orphan to a son, and we went from being slaves to sons. In other words, we have an eternal relationship with God that can never be broken, and that gives us that confidence that we need to be able to admit we're sinners. So, we can then, and the, the verbiage here says, we can, because of that confidence, we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. And the word Abba here is the, the same word that Jesus used in his intimate prayers with, with Jesus, kind of daddy, very, very, speaks of being very intimate. Then he goes on is, and, and he says that we not only, not only have these legal rights, this, this uh, legal standing before God, but, but we also are children. We have a relationship with him. And we are heirs with him, fellow heirs with Christ. And then there's a, something at the, the end of that that's a bit, a bit sobering, provided we suffer with him in order that we can be glorified with him. And Drew talked a bit about this a few weeks ago, so I would recommend if you, if you want to really deep dive that you go uh, download that sermon. But let me just kind of, uh, in finishing up, let me just kind of talk about what I think uh, Paul's trying to get out here. I, I don't think what he's trying to say is if you suffer, you will gain Christ. In order to gain Christ, you, you, you suffer in order to have a relationship with God. I think what he's saying is if you have a relationship with God, then your life is going to be a pattern of suffering just like Jesus's was. So that's one of the signs of a believer. Are you willing to enter into his suffering? Now, I'll admit, this is, this is tough for me, but in one of the things that really helped me, if you were here for the Paul Miller seminar, uh, he refers to this, this kind of uh, suffering as a dying life, right? Because what he's saying is Jesus lived and he died so that others could live. And so that's what, what God has called us. It's constantly something I have to work at. But what if... Individually and as a body of believers, we were the kind of people that would take the back seat so somebody else could sit in the front seat. We would, uh, we would speak into people's lives at the risk of losing a, a relationship because it's the right thing to do. We would constantly go low so that other people could benefit. What kind of people would that be? What would that make us? What would that do in your family dynamics if you as a father or as a mother, begin to model that before your kids. You know, I'm willing to be humbled. I'm willing to die so that others others can live. And that's the kind of suffering that it's the day-to-day stuff. It's not necessarily martyrdom. It's the day-to-day um, suffering that living and dying for other people. And that's what I think he's getting at here. And so what he's saying is that, that if you do that, then you're going to be glorified with him because if you don't do that, you're probably not part of him. Now, as we, as we finish up, this is a pretty weighty passage. This, this whole book, of, uh, the whole book, but this chapter is pretty weighty in some spots. Today we talked about recognizing the fact that, that we're sinners, that realizing, understanding there's a battle going on, and being able to effectively deal with the sin that easily besets us. But, remember, everything we talked about today is it still against the backdrop of verse 1. And I think verse 1 kind of sets the tone for the whole chapter. And here it is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more condemnation. So if you've placed your faith in Christ, that sin that you're dealing with, and you know what that is, that sin you're dealing with and trying to put to death, it can no longer condemn you. 
Charles Wesley captured this idea in the, in the line of the hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin. In other words, the truth is, the sin that you're struggling with and trying to kill has already been forgiven. The Holy Spirit is just working in you to break the power of that sin in your life. And that's good news. Let's pray together. God, thank you for, um, for your word and uh, just the way that it, it, uh, it hits right where we are. And, and God, I know that uh, as, as I've struggled through uh, preparing this, you pointed out many, many ways where, um, where I'm not dealing with sin properly. And I pray that today that as, as we um, think about what you, you have said in your word, that you would help us to, to um, be able to have the courage to deal with sin the way that you want us to, to not ignore it or tolerate it or nurture it, but to kill it uh, by the Spirit through the Word of God. And I pray that that you'd give us the confidence and courage to do that because of who we are in Christ. Remind us of that over and over and over. We're no longer slaves who are in bondage, but we're sons who are free. We have rights now as sons that we had we didn't have as slaves. And so thank you for that great truth, and I pray that you bring it home to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. He sends us out to be killing sin. Thank you, Terry, uh, for that uh, reminder this morning. Isn't it amazing to have uh, guys? We, we have a plethora of talent in this church, uh, and I'm grateful for that. So thank you, Terry, for sharing with us this morning. So now as he sends you to do war against sin, hold on to that truth that we just sang. Because in it is the power by which you will see uh, the, the power of sin broken in your life. And so receive the benediction then as the very power source that you need to go and do war against the sin in your life and in the sin in the lives of those that you've been called to care for. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in the power of his spirit. Go in his peace. Amen.